It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines, and we speak to Janine DeGiovanni and Natalia Gomenyuk, co-founders of The Reckoning Project, who collect testimonies across Ukraine to help bring Russian war criminals to justice. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of February, the day before the anniversary of the start of the full-scale invasion. I started by asking Dom, for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So heavy fighting continued around Bakhmut. Uh, Ukraine is working hard to keep the resupply routes open. So we've said before there are two main roads into Bakhmut. So one basically heading sort of south southwest-ish and the other uh, kind of north-northwest. Um, they are the main resupply routes. Now, of course, cross-country movement is possible, but never as good as a, a, a tarmac surface. Ukraine's been struggling to keep those open in recent weeks, but they seem to still be open. Um, but it's still very, very violent in that area. Further to the south, Buladar, uh, more heavy shelling there. That's been the scene of very, well, both in Bakhmut and Buladar, very, very costly efforts by Russia in recent weeks. They've had more success in the north around Bakhmut, albeit it's only minimal. They still haven't encircled the town and they've paid a very dear price for it. In Buladar to the south, um, hardly anything, hardly hardly gained anything. The the difference there, we think that around uh, Varg, uh, sorry, around Bakhmut, it's been the Wagner group, the Wagner mercenary group fighting there. So they are, um, dare I say, a bit more experienced, and they are they seem to have been having some success there. Around Vuladar, we think it's more regular Russian forces, largely made up of conscripts and mobilised people, so so no experience whatsoever, and they've they've virtually gone nowhere for again very great cost. Elsewhere, the Kirsch Bridge linking mainland Russia to Crimea 
Uh, that's reopened again today, or the ca- open to car traffic. The rail side of it is still not o- not open. Kirsch Bridge was hit last October uh, in a massive blast, which which uh, destroyed about two or three spans of the bridge. So still not open. Um, but Russian Deputy Prime Minister Merak Kushnulin, he said the reopening today was quote a big gift for the defender of the Fatherland Day unquote. That's today annual public holiday um, celebrated in Russia. I mean, you know, we know Putin was looking to mark the anniversary of this war in some way. He wanted to take the entire country. Then he wanted to take the Donbass and he wanted to take back Moot. He'll have to settle with getting some cars across a bridge. Uh, what else is happening? There is... Um, so yesterday we were talking about the Leopard 2 tank battalions, the tank battalions that... that or this tank um, coalition, that, that's this idea that's starting to form around Europe, this idea that Germany and Poland are going to lead on two Leopard 2 tank battalions, each of about 31 or each with 31 tanks, one the 2A4 variant and the other one the 2A6, the more modern variant of Leopard 2. And yesterday I said how Germany and Poland promised 14 tanks, uh, each 14 tanks. Canada promised four, Portugal three. And yesterday we heard, as we were on air, we heard that Spain had promised six. And actually the Spanish Prime Minister is in Kiev today. Um, we were talking about it yesterday because Finland's Defence Minister Mika Savola, he was talking at the Munich Security Conference last weekend and he was saying how Finland would, would be possibly able to support both battalions. And we know Finland has both variants, the 2A4 and the 2A6. So we were thinking, oh, that's you know, interesting. Are they going to do do both or or what? No, turns out he was he was just teasing all along. They are going to supply three Leopard 2 tank variants but they are the mine clearance variants and uh, and Mr Savola said in a press conference this morning he said um, quote these don't have a cannon these have a machine gun these are specifically for mine clearance unquote so question for today if it doesn't have a tank's main armament is it a tank I'll leave that one hanging because there'll be all sorts of controversy the only other thing I, I will finish with, and only because I'm stupid and it amused me, is activists this morning have painted, uh, spent, uh, deposited hundreds of litres of paint on the road outside the Russian embassy here in London. So this campaign group called Led by Donkeys, about 300 litres of paint, uh, a 500 square metre Ukrainian flag on the road. Uh, police was trying to stop traffic. You had, you had vehicles going through it, sort of spattering paint up the side. It was all... It was all it was very, very naughty, and I in no way condone it whatsoever. But um, others, I'm looking at Francis only through the window, others of, um, you know, who, for whom this kind of comedy appeals might like to go on social media, and you can see all the pictures there. In fact, you can see it on our Telegraph feed right now, not as I'm advertising it. Uh, and I'll take a little pause there. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Francis, can I come to you? What's the latest uh, diplomatic updates that you've been looking at? Well, thanks, David. Unsurprisingly, given the anniversary this week, it has been another eventful 24 hours in the geopolitical sphere. I'll cover the diplomatic updates later, but I want to start with Russia first off, just because of the significance of Putin's speech earlier in the week and things that have happened as a consequence of that. Evidently, in every sphere, political, cultural, military, Putin is upping the ante ahead of the anniversary. Starting with the military pronouncements we've seen in the last few hours, one of the brigadier generals, Gromov, has said that Russia is set the, setting the goal of capturing all the territory it does not control in the two regions that make up the industrial Donbass area of eastern Ukraine by summer. 
Now, Dom was talking about the fiercest fighting remaining around Bakhmut, and he commented on that, this Brigadier General, in a military briefing on the eve, of course, of the anniversary on Friday. He said the enemy, having an advantage in the resource of human mobilisation, is deliberately intensifying hostilities in an effort to deplete the units of the armed forces of Ukraine. So you've got a restatement of their military ambitions. Then we have Putin saying that he will deploy the new intercontinental missile, dubbed rather charmingly Satan II, which of course we've spoken about in recent months. He said that that will be ready by the end of the year, although this comes off the back of some US reports saying that the weapon failed in a recent test. Now Putin has claimed that this weapon is invincible and he said in a statement that we pay special attention as before to strength the nuclear triad this year the first launches of the Sarmat missile system will be put on combat duty and he said that the priority is to make the Kremlin's enemies think twice now I don't think there's anything particularly new about this nothing particularly significant about it further to what we've talked about in the past but it just does underline this point which I'm trying to make which is that Putin is trying to make the West and of course the domestic audiences at home think well this is not a war that is going to end anytime soon. This is a war that we, where Russia still feels that it is strong, that it is confident. And even if that is not the case, it is putting forward a brave face for the world. And the biggest example of that is what we're seeing in the cultural sphere. And yesterday, Natalia Vasilyeva, of course, a regular on our podcast, our Russia correspondent, has written a very, very detailed piece for the print, for the paper, uh, online and in print, uh, having watched the big headline act of its war anniversary concert in Russia, which is representing, so it says, a modern Russia. And for Natalia, this is a glaringly different place from five years ago, one where B-list entertainers provide the backing track to a descent into full-bore totalitarianism. Now, this event has about 100,000 people filling the stadiums. You can imagine the scenes, giant Russian flags, choirs of soldiers singing war anthems, and most disturbingly of all, children rescued, and I use that in inverted quotes, from Ukraine being paraded around on the stage. Putin gave a few remarks. He said, I've just heard from the top military leadership of our country that a battle is ongoing right now for our historical lands, for our people. And then he led the audience into a chant of Russia, Russia. The TV production values were rather slick. It had all of what you would expect from the kind of propaganda that we see coming out of Russia. Putin talked about how the whole country supported the war. And Natalia was very keen to underline in her piece that that's something evidently not correct, borne out by the uh, lack of volunteers for the fight and also the indifference of many citizens in, in areas outside of um, certain areas of the country. Then, as I say, I made reference to the children. So there were some unidentified children were ushered on the stage to praise the conflict. One group were in beanie hats and jackets, singing about writing a letter to a soldier on the front line. You're in the trenches, but I'm at home. It went, I'd like to thank you for a peaceful sky over Russia. Then there was a man, Yuri Gagarin, a namesake, of course, of the first man to go into space, who was introduced on stage as the saviour of Mariupol children. There was a video shown that had battle scenes and him guiding civilians through a bombed-out city. And so, you know, unsurprisingly, it's pretty much what we would expect to see. Singers making all sorts of verbose remarks. Uh, one, indeed, I, struck me as particularly shocking, was talking about putting the red flag back over Berlin. Of course, a reference to the Battle of Berlin in 1945 and the victory over Nazi Germany. And again, this kind of hostile rhetoric towards the West. 
Now, it's important to caveat all of this with the fact that we don't believe that these people were all volunteers who went to this stadium event. Tickets never went on sale. There were multiple local media reports that university students were either forced to attend or offered perks, such as an exemption from class. There was a car park outside where intercity buses were sort of seemed to be shuttling people in, people being paid perhaps to attend. And also keen to emphasize as well, Natalia, that the standard of the performance was also very second rate. Most of Russia's best love singers and performers have fled the country and have been virtually banned from public life because of their anti-war views. So those that did perform were um, you know, not the, not the best of the best, shall we say. But pretty disturbing stuff. And I know that we've been covering this kind of stuff for a long, long time now. and It's very easy to become desensitized to it. But when you have children on stage singing these kind of songs, when you see the kind of rhetoric and the songs about bombing territories in Ukraine, it just shows the, the gulf of, of morality, I would argue, that we are seeing here. And I'll come, as I say, to the diplomatic updates after our interviews. But that's where we are in the military and culture sphere within Russia, David. Thank you, Dom. Thank you, Francis, for your updates. Uh, Janine and Natalia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, could you just uh, briefly introduce yourselves and explain to our listeners what the Reckoning Project is? Uh, Janine, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, thank. First of all, thank you so much for having us on um, and to give us a chance to explain what we do at the Reckoning Project. So my name is Janine Di Giovanni. I'm the executive director uh, prior to that, I was, I suppose, what you would call a war reporter for more than 30 years, um, reporting about 1920 conflicts, um, including witnessing three genocides um, in Bosnia, Srebrenica, Rwanda, and the Yazidi slaughter. So in many ways, the Reckoning Project was born out of that desire to witness atrocities, but to fight against impunity. Um, Natalia Gumanyuk, um, who will introduce herself next, uh, my co-founder, and Peter Pomerantsev, who's a British academic and journalist, um, we founded this a few days after the invasion. Um, our goal and our mission is basically to report, document atrocities, and then to build cases. Um, so we basically started um, recruiting investigative journalists from throughout Ukraine. It's very important to us that we use Ukrainian human rights monitors, journalists who have been trained to a high standard to report the atrocities. They're throughout the country. Natalia recruited them. Um, we train them very carefully. Um, and then we basically take witness statements. So far in one year, we have 200, which is double what I thought we could possibly do. And I think what that illustrates is the absolute horrific level of incidents. The Office of the Prosecutor General in Kyiv says there are 65,000 incidents. In all of my time reporting war, and I thought I had seen everything, I have never seen such unprecedented amount of, of crime, of criminal activity. So we basically take these statements, we then, we verify them, and then we begin to build cases, which is the stage we are in right now. The second part of our mission is that we do multimedia platforms. So Natalia and her team, who are filmmakers and writers as well, um, we just had a cover story in Time magazine. We're in The Atlantic. We have two stories in Vanity Fair, um, Foreign Affairs. And then we publish 
films. Part of this is to raise awareness for advocacy, but it's also something much more deeper, something that Peter, Natalia, and I feel very strongly about. We want to counter the narrative of disinformation. I've seen too many times, especially with Srebrenica and Rwanda, the narrative completely rewritten. Um, there are genocide deniers. There are people who say this didn't happen. There weren't that many atrocities. This didn't take place. Well, we're at the Reckoning Project. Our goal is to stamp that out. That's the second part. And the third part, which we we're just beginning to do as well, is to create a lasting memorial, um, something that will remain forever again so that people can never say this didn't happen. Um, I think at the heart of our mission is this, this goal to stamp out impunity. Um, I've lived personally with too much anger and bitterness over especially Bosnia and Rwanda to make sure that this doesn't happen in Ukraine. And that's really what our team, we're now about 28 people, are on the ground doing 24-7. Um, so I'll turn over to Natalia now. I, yes, I'm a Ukrainian-based uh, journalist, uh, besides all the things uh, Janine said uh, in our introductory. So um, I, I did report the conflicts before the, the Russian invasion in 2014, as it started back then, and was largely reporting uh, the occupation of Crimea and uh, what was going on in the occupied Donbass. Uh, but uh, yes, for the last year, I myself was traveling quite a lot around the country and oversaw the, the work of our reporters and researchers. And at this stage, I also can say that we are pretty, after a year of the invasion, we're pretty confident uh, in explaining what's really going on uh, in terms of the types of the crimes which are committed. Um, we can discuss some of the patterns. But what is also for us uh, important to say when we started, uh, Janine was warning us that we need to be patient and we understand we need to be patient with the court cases, trials, as also history showed that it usually takes years. However, um, we can also say that after a year, and again, we worked, uh, you know, we have people who worked on, on, on Mariupol, both on the bombing of the uh, facilities there, but also the deportation of the kids. Uh, we looked intensively on the uh, incidents of what we call extensive use of a weapon and the bombings of the cities, whether that would be the attack on the train station in Kramatorsk, which uh, caused the death of 62 people last April to, you know, the further attacks of that kind or uh, in particular tortures and repressions in the occupied territories. Quite a few of our researchers are from the occupied regions themselves. And we can already say that we definitely can document war crimes and we document war crimes. We work with the lawyers. We provide what we uh, discover to uh, to our colleagues who, by the way, I should um, stress that uh, the analysts and the lawyers, they're also of the Syrian region, which is also important to show this, you know, that these crimes are beyond what is going on in Ukraine. The similar crimes has been committed in Syria, in Chechnya. But now we can speak about the uh, that um, we're looking more even on the patterns of the crimes against humanity, because we see the very similar crimes are committed 
in various areas of the country in different times. They could be, you know, in March in Chernihiv region, where, for instance, uh, Janine referred to the story in Times, we, in, in the Time magazine, where we discussed when the whole village was kept in the basement for almost one month, uh, to, you know, to the to Kharkiv region, where different kind of things were, were, were happening in, in spring, uh, to the ongoing persecutions already in autumn in the southern part of the country. Um, and I, I, I do think Janine is speaking a lot about the accountability, but I also think it's very important uh, for me being Ukrainian uh, that, yes, we aim at the accountability. We, we, we think that it's very important to... Um, um, you know, not to let uh, the, the, the propaganda to deny these atrocities, uh, but also maybe to do something uh, in terms of prevention, because I really hope that even if there would be in, in any time soon any indictment, maybe there is, even if there is a slight chance that uh, then the Russians would understand that they would be caught, not like it happened in Syria or, or Chechnya, maybe it ha- it. It, it may, you know, have some impact and some of the crimes won't be committed. Well, oh, please, I guess, please. Can I add something um, uh, to that? Um, thanks, Natalia. That's exactly what the Reckoning Project is about. But there's, there's one thing Natalia touched on, which is really important to us, and that's Putin's wars. Um, I, I wrote something at one point called Putin's Gruesome Playbooks because I, I've been through three Putin wars. I was in Grozny when it fell to Russian forces in 2000. I spent many years in Syria, um, the destruction of Aleppo, Homs, other places, but Aleppo in particular where Putin was involved since 2015, and now Ukraine. So we draw very carefully, and our our chief legal counsel is a, is a Syrian, Ibrahim Alabi, and our data analyst is also Syrian. Um, so we look very carefully at his patterns, particularly when it comes to attacks on civilians. And there are very evident things that he does, the destruction of schools, kindergartens, hospitals, the fact that he shells and shells and shells until things are absolute rubble. He turned Grozny into a parking lot. Aleppo was basically, you know, nearly wiped out. And and now the uh, Mariupol, the way the destruction is carried out is is absolutely appalling. So this is really important. And the other thing is there's a lot of talk about genocide. Um, are you going for genocide charges? And the team, we always talk about this. And, and I say, look, to me, this, this often people want the genocide charge, which has a very high legal bar to achieve. It's almost in a way saying the crimes against humanity that are being committed daily are not enough. And I think absolutely the crimes against humanity that are happening on the ground are equally appalling. But there is one thing the Reckoning Project is looking at very carefully. And we were, I think, the first to really investigate this. And that is the deportation of Ukrainian children to Russia. And we're looking at this as a bigger picture of the kind of eradication of Ukrainian identity. Um, Taking these children to Russia, putting them in camps, with many of them whilst their parents are still alive, um, and giving them Russian names, trying to indoctrinate them into, into Russification. So You know, this and many other things is one of the things that we're really focused on and will continue to do so. 
Janine and Natalia, you've given us a really interesting and passionate and furious brief of, of what you do. Um, and you've talked us through many of the different examples of the things you've looked at. Over the last year, are there individual stories that really stand out to you that you'd want our listeners um, to hear about? I'd like Natalia to go through um, Kramatorsk because that, and actually I've just come from the Munich Security Forum and from Berlin, where of course we are hoping within the year to build a case for universal jurisdiction. One of our team members was one of the people that helped build the Koblenz war crimes trial. Um, of course, the first Syrian accountability trial. Um, Kremitorsk, I think, is something that we can work with. Um, and indeed, I, I met with various German entities that are also working on this. Um, it's a case that we're looking at extremely carefully. Um, I'm really proud of what our team has done. I, I'd love Natalia to talk us through the more granular part of it. So I'll probably start with Kramatorsk uh, attack on the train station, but there are way more outstanding. Uh, so there were 62 people killed by the cluster munition uh, in April of the last year. It was a train station. You know, today you started uh, the discussion about the uh, the program with the discussion about Bakhmut. Uh, you know, it was exactly the moment when the attack on the Donbass started and there was a call for evacuation by the Ukrainian government, it was believed that maybe the Donbass would be captured, you know, as early as last, uh, you know, April. So people were fleeing, especially the people who used to live, you know, closer to the front line in the Donbass uh, and, uh, and they knew what the war is. They couldn't expect it would be that scale. And at that time, there were 4,000 people inside of the train station trying to leave the area. It was the only station from where they could go. And then there was this bomb. And we're following a number of the people who worked at this train station, the volunteers who came to help people to flee, but also the family, you know, like the family where there were twin sisters. Um, one has uh, two kids and it happened that one stayed in the station. The second one was outside. Uh, it's extremely graphic story, unfortunately. You know, I also think that I've seen a lot during the last year. And, of course, we are very careful about, you know, while we're working to showing the images. But this idea that the munition, which has been usually used to cause a huge damage to the humans, was used in this particular way, it's, it's pretty devastating. Uh, but for me, it's so interesting and astonishing how people pulled them some uh, kind of got all their resilience. The, the station was later back uh, working. You know, the people try to uh, be back to, to life. Some of them really require still help. That would be just one of the stories of the extensive use of force by bombing and shelling. But the others, you know, Janine told about the, the, the trafficking of children. I still think we can't even comprehend how it happened uh, that it was the, at that time, 12-year-old boy, Matvi, who was taken from his father, was, was taken to Moscow, uh, to this camp with his two younger siblings. And it was him who figured out the father was detained in the notorious Olenivka camp. Uh, so the family was separated and this small boy managed to find his father, finding in social media the boss of this of his father, managed to, you know, reach him out after he was freed from the prison and insisted that he should really bring 
family back because the Russians were forcing to uh, th- these kids to choose whether they want to be adopted or go to the orphan house. You know, there are a couple of other stories. The recent one, which was, you know, we, we did, we, it's one of our testimonies, of course, but I really hope it would develop to the incident or the case uh, we we did for the Vanity Fair about the hospital in southern Ukraine in Mykolaiv region where 80 medics uh, remained um, during the occupation. Nine months of the occupation, mainly female, female, mainly nurses. Besides giving you know help and providing help to the community, where still it, it was a quite a it was a town and it was quite a large hospital before the war twenty at least twenty thousand people dependent on their life uh, so people stayed without water without electricity they were providing for uh, for the people they were threatened they were threatened with executions they were treating the people who were uh, you know tortured they were helping the uh, not helping but they were still treating the Russian soldiers because being you know loyal to the uh, to the oath uh, but amazing that till the very end they remained very loyal to the Ukrainian state um, so there are quite a lot of them but to be honest each of the story is pretty unique you know despite I'm kind of as an editor I'm overseeing uh, together with the team of course most of these 200 interviews and even more were more, more testimonies to which Jeanine refer every single is pretty is pretty um, you know, astonishing. Uh, but for me, it's also very important to say that I truly appreciate the people who talk to us. It's a very traumatic experience. We were trained how to speak to the people, uh, you know, who experience uh, horrible trauma. But they usually inspire. You just really don't feel it, don't know how, how, how why they, you know, speaking. They really want to uh, the the uh, the justice to be served. They want their stories to be shared. They are very cautious about being very factual. They really don't want overdo. Uh, so I do think that makes the opportunity of the accountability possible because it's not me and Janine and Peter and our team who are doing that. It's all of these people doing everything possible uh, to make uh, justice um to reach the justice. And I'm speaking now about the reckoning project, and I believe there are way more people like this in Ukraine. So can I ask, part of your work, as you've said, is training journalists and researchers to, to collect these stories, to verify them, to codify them. How how do you make um, these reports sort of trial-proof? And what was the issue with, with previous um, wars? I mean, Janine, you, you've mentioned your, your, your experience there. So... Again, part of the reason, you know, literally on February 25th last year, Peter Pomerantsev rang me and we were both in anguish over the invasion. And he said, what can we do? I felt I, you know, I've spent 30 plus years being on the ground, being a human rights reporter. Um, But it didn't go deep enough. And I've been called numerous times to The Hague. I've been called by investigators I keep very careful notes. I often worked for the American media, where, of course, you go through a very extensive fact-checking system. But fact-checking and having a good notebook isn't enough. So I thought there was a way to train highly experienced journalists. And I know um, your Telegraph reporters are among the best, Roland, and um, extraordinary reporting. But how do we take it one step further? So how can his reporting be actually admittable to court? Um, 
there's things that, of course, that you cannot do. Um, first of all, I, one other thing I just want to add, we're not a journalist training unit. That's not what we do. We're a war crimes unit, um, which also has a multimedia dimension. But we do train journalists in a very specific way. So probably the most important thing is what Natalia just mentioned, trauma. Um, I have seen so many times, and unfortunately it's usually television journalists, who go somewhere where there's been a bombing, where there's been a horrific incident, and they begin to just run around trying to get quotes, um, you know, putting microphone in people's faces who are shaking, who are traumatized. Well, a traumatized victim's evidence will not be able to be used in court because usually their time frame is very mixed up. Um, so we have to ensure that they are not traumatized while we are taking witness statements, but also that we do not re-traumatize them. So the motto at the Reckoning, te- the Reckoning Project is do no harm. That is first and foremost. The second part is concise, concrete evidence. So basically, once we train the reporters in trauma, um, not just for their, the witnesses, but for themselves, it's really important to me. And I'm constantly saying to Natalia, you need to take a break now. You need to take a break. You need to do self-care. Our, our monitors have been doing this now for one year. Um, it's very heavy stuff. The, the witness statements that I go through every day are extremely granular. So if you are taking that in on a daily basis, you need to be protected. Um, Everyone knows how PTSD works. Everyone knows the effect of it on war reporters, photographers, cameramen. It's it's very strong. So that's one thing. The second thing, um, no leading questions. So that's something that you have to almost retrain journalists to do because it's almost in a journalist's you know, second, like second, uh, you know, the way a journalist would ask a question. When you saw the Russian tank coming down the road, but we can't do that. We would say instead, what happened? What did you see? So you let, you let the witness lead the narrative. You don't really lead it. In terms of accuracy, we, we just had a phase two of our training recently in Ukraine with everyone coming together. And one thing that came up is our lawyer said, um, you know, I don't like the idea of using OSINT to verify things because it really says in a way that the witnesses are not reliable. So what we do instead is we take a lot of time. We're not doing breaking news story. We're not the Associated Press. We're not Reuters. We can go back to witnesses. Although there's something to be cautious of here, you can't the more you re-interview a witness, their story might change. So we have to be extremely careful of that. Um, we train our, our in, um, I keep calling them reporters, but I, I, t- I prefer to think of them as human rights monitors now. Um, we train them in, in IHL, International Humanitarian Law. We, we go over past wars with them and examples. And we also do training in, in storytelling so that they can build stories out of our archives. So I think it helps to see the Reckoning Project is at the heart of our work is our our archives, which are locked down um, and which we use for twofold. One, for the cases, which we are building, and the second, for for the multimedia platforms. 
And, you know, in terms of where we're going with international justice mechanisms, we're going for a variety. Um, first and foremost, of course, we work with the Ukrainian, the prosecutor general's office, because it's really important in the same way that it was really important for Natalia, Peter and myself to only use Ukrainian monitors. Why? Because I've seen over the years foreigners, whether they're working for excellent human rights groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, um, or even ICC investigators, they're foreigners. You know, they go to a country and they're not, they're not local. It was really crucial for us that we use Ukrainians to give them agency over their justice, of the, their justice system. Um, never before, in my knowledge, have mass atrocities been so heavily investigated. But we wanted to make sure that ours was airtight. We didn't just want to have a website where anyone could post war crimes. That's not what we wanted to do. We wanted it to be extremely um, methodical. Um, so our data analyst, once we get the witness statements, um, once the, report, uh, the human rights monitors do their work, they then create these statements. The statements then go to me and our, um, our data analyst, who is a Syrian based outside of Ukraine, and we very, very carefully go through them for patterns. We then will use some form of OSINT for verification. If we need it, for instance, are there military, were there military vehicles nearby, or if we need photographs, aerial photographs, or audio, or in some cases with the children, can we get documents that verify chain of command and intent? Then we're beginning to work on the tribunals. So whether or not we go for the special tribunal, the crime of aggression, the so-called leadership crime, um, which looks more and more viable, uh, whether or not we go for um, a special hybrid court, whether it's a national court in Ukraine, a local court, even the ICC, these are all things we're looking at. And in particular, I'm very interested in universal jurisdiction. Um, so that's really where we are and how we use journalism. My, my, my vision um, is that we work in Ukraine for three to five years, and then we take our template to other parts of the world where impunity has been massive. And I mean Syria, I mean Yemen, I mean the Rohingya crisis, the Uyghurs, Palestine, Israel, um, places where really justice has been denied. And the other thing that's hugely important to us is time. In Rwanda, it took 20 years for the architects of the genocide to finally make it to the dock. Bosnia, I have deep, deep bitterness over what happened there in terms of justice. We want this to be, we want to hasten and quicken justice. And we're doing that by getting these statements out, out there, not waiting until we have the, the, the main figures in court. When they get there, we are going to have our cases built. We are going to have airtight evidence. We're going to be ready. And that's really part, a huge part of our mission, is that you know, justice delayed is justice denied. And the Reckoning Project is really countering that. Thanks, Janine. Natalia, what would you like to answer to that? You um, asked about, you know, again, the how can it be um, access used in the litigation on something. For me, as a journalist, you know, working on the field of human rights, I also say that this amount of data and this neutrality of the approach when you ask the people, when you really not lead with a question, 
really made me rethink the the, the journal the, the journalism. I really understood that usually we were always trying to get the very emotional quotes, very, you know, it, it would be enough to talk to a couple of people. Now, when I'm, you know, go- it's not like I'm going through the fact-checking. I When I talk to the historians, international or Ukrainian, they actually were saying, you know, what you're really doing is a bit like documenting historic truth. And I do think that, unfortunately, you know, with the reason the technology uh, was is, is developed today, Maybe, you know, 30 years ago, uh, there won't be an opportunity to record everything uh, in lens uh, compared to what we do. Now, um, yes, we try to film everything. We try to, you know, document very carefully. And um, I also see very often that, um, you know, I have no time to really read Russian propaganda. But I was just recently, you know, discussing with some of the analysts, uh, you know, what are the framing of this conflict by Russia. You started this uh, program with referring to, you know, what was happening in Moscow. And I do see that there is a lot of denial already. And I also feel from our people to whom we spoke that it is critically important for them that this factual evidence is there. You know, that you cannot really deny it had happened. There were enough, you know, for instance, in in Yahidne, in this village, there were 360 people for one month in the basement. You know, they were humiliated. They were treated in in a way they probably had one bucket to go to toilet for, you know, 80 people. They were not fed well. They couldn't breathe properly. There are a lot of them and uh, everybody has a story and it should be, uh, you know, it, 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 it should be recorded. Something to add as well, uh, which made me to rethink the idea about the, the crimes. You know, I think we, we, we started to speak about these things a lot as about tragedies. But uh, there are a lot of tragedies, but these are exactly crimes. And when there is any crime happening, uh, you know, there is investigation and there is a punishment. So for me, I don't, when there is a discussion whether there should be tribunal, shouldn't be tribunal, would it happen, won't it happen, I still don't figure out why it shouldn't happen. I do think it's like in usual criminal, uh, criminal cases, if somebody committed crime, not just did something tragic and bad, there should be punishment. Um, and uh, Janine mentioned, uh, you know, this connection to, uh, to other conflicts. But I, I, I really think that there is a perfect circumstances in Ukraine uh, to finally to reach justice. You know, we have people, you know, many, you know, I'm not speaking just about us. We do have you no know, democratic state, pretty pluralistic. We have a transparency where a lot of in- international investigation uh, investigators can come, verify. A lot of international reporters can come. There is some political will on uh, from the Ukrainian state and from the international public. And these cases are so clear. We have so much. We have again more than sixty-five thousands of the uh, cases registered of possible breaches of the rules of war. Uh, there is evidence for the war crimes. There is evidence for the crimes against humanity. Uh, there is, you know, there is an urge to make it fast. So, if there won't be a proper tribunal soon, then it would mean that the, the, any tribunal is impossible. Any court is impossible. Because I do believe that today in Ukraine, despite of these horrendous things which are happening, uh, we can be uh, optimistic because it's indeed 
enough of everything in order to make it. Uh, and I still sometimes hear quite a lot of pessimism uh, from, in particular, reporters who are asking the questions, international reporters, like, oh, do you believe it would happen? For me, the, uh, the sign that things are moving uh, are the, the, the talks with international lawyers and how uh, they are changing, how their mood is changing. Indeed, in spring, in early summer, they were really kind of cautious, trying to say it will take time. But by now, I hear a lot. They they say, like, we do have enough. We do have a lot. We it, It's already the time to do the things. I've just got one more question. Um, and I know Dom and uh, Francis will have some of their own. Um, but we know tomorrow is the, the bloody anniversary of the start of the full-scale invasion. From both of you, what would you want our listeners to understand about the last year, if you could choose one thing, and also just the one to come? I, I think for me, um, personally, on a personal level, I want to send... I th- the Reckoning Project, I believe, sends a very strong message, not just to the Russian war criminals, but to all war criminals out there, committing crimes, that something is being documented, that they are being watched, that there will be accountability. I feel for so many years, especially throughout the 90s wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, war crimes, basically, there was this terrible plague of impunity. And I do believe that the Ukrainian war has changed that. I think it is the first war where really we're looking at the mistakes we made in Syria, in Yemen, in other places and saying, we're not going to let this happen again, because somewhere out there are people that have suffered horrifically. And this is really a way of saying that we are monitoring, we are watching, and one day you, we will get you. International justice will reach you. That's hugely, hugely important to, to the Reckoning Project. You know, I'm based in Kiev, uh, somehow in the same, luckily in the same flat where I was a year ago uh, uh, when the invasion and, and, and started, maybe during the first days of the war, uh, when I needed to leave due to different reasons, still staying in the capital and reporting the war, staying the whole year in Ukraine. I wasn't sure whether I would be ever back. Uh, and uh, I should really say, coming from the human rights uh, background, that uh, you know, I'm grateful to, to, to the country and to the society uh, and to the army, to anybody that, you know, Kiev is not taken, uh, that we're still trying to, you know, to live some life. But um, I should say that when I talk to a lot of Ukrainians, my colleagues, friends, journalists, a lot of people who are working a lot, including in our team, a lot of people always, they feel guilty. They feel guilty by not doing enough. They always think like, I can do more uh, wherever you are. And I understood that it's this feeling of guilt comes not from the bitterness, not just from the sorrow. It comes from the idea something depends on me. It comes from the idea of this empowerment that even if I do something, maybe it would change something. When I really confront a lot of people from abroad, sometimes the most you know, difficult questions for me, when we, kind of, we, we are called to say, like, can you give up? Maybe you can do nothing. You know, it's inevitable. Russia is so big. I, I'd like to share this feeling that you know, each of us can do something, even if it's not a lot. It's still doable, and uh, we we really can't afford because when when I Janina was speaking about like a very 
big terms about, you know, possible wars, impunity. Um, when President Biden was here in Ukraine this week, a lot of people were also speaking, you know, how symbolic it is. But at the moment he was there, we also needed to take care about the air raid alarm. Because for a lot of people, it was not just a symbolic gesture of the American president, but the a security of these people. So for me, while we Speaking about all these big things, it's also very important to understand that at this given moment, there are people who are living under the occupation. They are still in the torture chambers in Skadovsk, in Kachovka, in Militopol. There are people in Mariupol who denied, you know, any justice. There are people in the in the towns under the shelling, and uh, it's not really theoretic. It, it, you know, the it, it's really about uh, saving them helping them, um, and for us, the every moment matter. Thank you, Natalia and Janine. Dom and Francis, you've been listening uh, to all of this. Um, what questions do you have? Thank you both for your insights on this really important subject. Janine, you spoke of Bosnia and Rwanda, two conflicts, of course, defined by the genocides that occurred there. I just wondered what your reflections are on those who argue that the war crimes in Ukraine are more in the background as opposed to the battlefront and the personalities involved, whether that be Putin or Zelensky. Do you agree with that view? And if so, does it, does it concern you? I, I, well, I do think, actually, there's been a lot of reporting on the, the human suffering. Um, it, it is true the battlefront is primarily the, the focus, but I think that there's been quite a lot, at least probably because that's what we're so immersed in, in in how the Ukrainian spirit has, the resilience has reacted to this war. And I think that is something, again, I, I've never seen. And I'm talking about, you know, 1920 wars that I've gone through. These, it, there is this kind of sense, and I, I don't want to make light of it, of this, um, we are going to fight back. We want territorial integrity. We will not fall. We will not fail. And there is, okay, we're one year in now, and I kept saying to the team, very worried that we were going to have compassion fatigue at some point, that within six months, the international press would not be around, it wouldn't be on the pages of the Daily Telegraph, that it would fade in the way that Syria did, or Yemen, very quickly. Um, instead, I don't think that's happened. I think the world is galvanized aside from, and this, of course, is, is very much your area, the global south. Um, we saw today the terrible photograph of Modi and Putin embracing. Um, and, and this is something we are very concerned about. And we are working in our own way on impacting, trying to impact the global south to understand that this isn't a Western war. Um, this isn't about NATO expansion. It's about Ukraine really fighting for democracy. And I know that sounds corny, but essentially, that is what it is. I mean, they are risking their lives. They're getting killed. Young men are coming home on the trains every night at midnight, injured and, and killed for to hold back Putin's disruption. And that's what he is. So, I, yes, it is, it is battlefront. But to me, at the heart of it is the destruction of society. And that is always, as a conflict analyst, what I look at. You know, how is society being impacted? What will the effect be on the educational system? What will be the impact on the next generation of children who have lived through this war? What will be the, what will be the effect on society? How are people going to rebuild? 
what will reparations, how will that look like? What will the Marshall Plan look like? Um, I, I just came from Munich and there was a lot of talk already about a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, which I find extraordinary, you know, having that kind of international galvanization to rebuild the country. Syria never got that. Um, absolutely not. Didn't get that kind of attention. So I, I think there is something quite unique about how Ukraine has, has, has really impacted the world. Thank you. That's very interesting. And, and this question is, is for both of you. You've both spoken about this issue of children, which is something that we've tried to raise on this podcast as soon as we possibly could, uh, as soon as we started hearing reports really on it. I just wonder whether there are any other examples of stories that you've heard, any almost, I suppose, rumors of stories that have not yet made the headlines that concern you and maybe something that we will be looking at in the future? Um, so let me get into that. Um, I know, you know, because of the topic, there are quite a few uh, journalists interested in that. And I've uh, talked to a lot who's searching for the, you know, parents searching for their kids there is a particular explanation why this story is not that public uh, because those kids which are taken to russia they're kept a bit like the hostages uh, because there is a very candid and very complicated process of uh, getting those kids back and uh, we know that till now there were just 350 kids uh, who, who which ukrainian state was able to return to ukraine uh, but if it was not really very much organized uh, you know within the first months of the war we now see that it is organized so there are different types of the uh, you know kids which are taken there are kids from the war zone who are probably orphans they are maybe from in ukraine we have the system of this family of family orphan houses when for instance there would be 10 kids um, living and quite a few are taken there were also in the war territories uh, the call of, to the parents especially from the parents with a you know difficult background to give their kids uh, for instance to a safer place and to move from the front line to some uh, camp or sanatorium in Russia uh, but and there were a lot of cases that parents kind of agree or they were under the pressure and there are groups of kids uh, which are waiting to be returned by they are not uh, so uh, this is th 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 that's why also we know about a bit more cases and stories like that uh, we do not really uh, we are very cautious about making some of them public in particular because if there is a slight chance that this kid can be returned you know better not to to to, to go with the story so far what is striking in this story that uh, for instance we were able to confirm I earlier referred to the story of the boy from Mariupol that within this group there were another kids and one of those kids in in the group was you know our protagonist there was a boy which has what was adopted by the Russian commissioner for the kids, Maria Lvova-Bilova. What is also very special that last week she had a meeting with Vladimir Putin on record for television when the president of Russia was kind of thanking her for adopting the boy from uh, the Donbass. She was thanking him and uh, we were speaking in length about chain of command this operation, this regarding how many of these kids are, cannot be taken without the knowledge and without the Russian state. 
um the, uh, somehow they are even boasting about uh, you know adopting the ukrainian kids um so we really need to speak about them a bit like about the hostages with this level of sensitivity i think also something we're we're looking at quite carefully is filtration camps that's another thing and one other theme is hate rhetoric um we're beginning to look very carefully at how hate rhetoric could play into the propaganda, even Putin's statements. I, I never used to pay attention to anything, to statements, but his statements are full of so much incitement. So that is something without giving too much away on our future projects. That's another thing. And again, if some of your listeners may remember in Rwanda, Radio Milkulin, which was a direct incitement to, to the genocide. So, These are some other larger themes the Reckoning Project is is looking ahead at. Uh, Janine, Natalia, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's it's vital that we hear these these messages. A couple of quick questions, if I if I may. And please forgive my ignorance here, but I I was never under the impression there was a a sort of defined evidential standard slash legal bar. I thought anything could be presented as evidence and if it's very weak like you know leading questions then that can easily be dismantled by by the other side but i didn't am i right in thinking there is no such thing as an evidential standard and if that if that is correct then in this day in today when there is so much open source intelligence ozint of of other other people able to add um value from i know satellite imagery or radio frequency things and, and what and what have you does that mean that that actually more um, small e evidence that might in the past have easily been dismantled is now applicable and and can be backed up by other open source information or or are we still have we not moved on in in the last sort of 10 or 20 years thanks um i think that it depends on prosecutors right so prosecutors can be very depending on who it is what country it's in what kind of case you're you're building I think prosecutors can be very um, picky or it's, it's very important what kind of evidence is being handled. Now, one thing to be clear, we don't do forensic investigations, so we're not handling bones or mass graves or anything like that. Our work is purely human, human intelligence, human testimonies. Um, it, I mean, a journalist can be called to The Hague and give, and give, give testimony, but what, we, what we're trying to do is to make sure that it is going to be airtight. So someone, let's say there were, let's say if there was a Daily Telegraph reporter who witnessed somehow the atrocities in Bucha, that the notes he was taking or his the aftermath of going back to witnesses and getting their statements would be exactly something that the prosecutor could use. Not that they could not that they would throw it out. So that's really what we're doing. We're tightening that format and making sure that it is admittable. Um, your question about open source, I agree with you. I think it's a very new and <laughs> extraordinary world. Um, but I don't think, I think in many ways that nothing comes close to actually sourcing testimonies from witnesses and sitting with them and getting their, you know, what they saw, what what actually happened. And then using open source as as a secondary means of, of verification. Um, but at the core of it is spreading out 
monitors to get the 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 evidence in a sense locked down in these testimonies thanks and just just finally are you able at all to take on work in areas that are still under russian control i'm thinking about the the bombing of the Mariupol theater or if you don't have access there is that is is that the end of it it's extremely dangerous. Um, we have many people who are from the, the occupied territories. Um, some of them are outside now. To be unbelievably cautious and careful, and I don't want to say too much about it on air because it, you know, it endangers people. Um, but I do want to point out, you, you asked about the Mariupol Theater. Um, forensic architecture um, is one accountability group based in uh, Berlin um, but using U- Ukrainians that have basically recreated the crime scenes. And we we work with them. Um, they're a research group. Um, actually, they came out of Goldsmiths in London. And they use architectural technique and other technologies to, to in- actually investigate um, state violence and, and human rights around the world. And they're just, they're really, really extraordinary. So right now they're working on the Mariupol Theater, you know, the levels of it. We are also working, one of our partners is Stanford University's Starling Lab, and they do similar work as well. So they can recreate um, using these images of what actually happened, let's say, in the Yehidni Cellar or the Mariupol Theater. Uh, I probably would add on that uh, because I don't want to create the feeling that if the territory is occupied, we don't know what's going on there. Uh, you know, some of our researchers, in particularly beyond the people like me and people who are based in Kiev, we really uh, make it possible that the high, you know the, the the reporters from the territories which are occupied uh, became our researchers and monitors. Uh, some of them, like Oleg Baturin, he was himself, you know, kidnapped in Kahovka, which is still occupied. And uh, the whole time we were, for instance, till Kherson was occupied, we were recording numerous statements. What was um, shocking for us then when the area was liberated, almost everything was confirmed. I was able to go back to the cells and, you, you know, see with my eyes exactly what I heard before and that somehow like, has a very huge impact you know when we were doing the story about the hospital in the occupation we started to work on this story when the area was still occupied and what again was very special for me then we, we recorded a lot of testimonies and uh, knowledge and when I was back to the place everything that people said you know still when the town was under Russian occupation turned out to be true from the places which people described to the names and reconfirmed by the others. So, so far, we're doing quite a lot uh, reporting on the and documenting on what's going on in the occupied left bank of Kherson region and also moving more on the Zaporizhia region and looking for a new types of kind of crimes which are not yet um, let's say, uh, so much public uh, because, you know, there there is... uh, And we do, we sometimes are able very candidly, you know, talk to the people uh, anonymously who are still there because the the connection, you know, is uh, should be very secure, but it's there. So I can claim that, you know, the crimes are going on, they are still committed, and we cannot tell that we don't know what's going on. We do know, and it's up to us to take the decision what we do with this knowledge. 
Well, thank you, Janine and Natalia, for your time. Thank you, Francis and Dom, for your questions. Uh, Janine and Natalia, is there anything we haven't talked about that you would want to mention at this point before we go to Francis for some final updates? Um, I think I'd, I just would like to point out again that um, really Ukraine is the first war that, that I've witnessed where there has been such um, absolute extraordinary investigations going on um, on the mass atrocities. And I do believe that this is a turning point for international justice. I really believe that we're leaving behind an era of impunity where grievous crimes happened and we walked away from it and we closed our eyes. And I think Ukraine is completely changing the, the monitor for that. I think we're entering a new era of accountability. And I'm very proud the Reckoning Project is, is at the forefront of that. I probably end with this, that there are still debates whether there should be this special tri tribunal for the crime of aggression. I wouldn't express my opinion, and I should say the people to whom I talk as the witness and survivors of the various crimes are really in-depth into that. But that would be very important if it happened uh, rather than soon. Because in a lot of cases, uh, it is asked, you know, like, do you want the particular perpetrator being uh, in the court, exactly the soldier which, you know, Know, was committing some crimes in your village. But I do think uh, the, 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 the people to whom we talk, they pretty much understand that uh, it's not really by, uh, it's of course about these particular perpetrators, but it's really about the Russian leadership. So it really matters for, 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 for the people if uh, it can be taken with, uh, especially because it's easy to prove the, the, the crime of aggression. Uh, it can be a very, very important milestone in uh, the whole process of, of uh, reaching justice. Thank you, Janine and Natalia. Francis, I know you've got a few more updates for us before we finish. Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. Yes, I said it was an eventful 24 hours in all sorts of spheres, and it is important, I think, just to underline a few points in the diplomatic one. So I want to start again in Moldova, because we've spoken about that recently as being an issue of potential future crisis. And what's causing considerable anxiety this morning is that Russia's defence ministry has made a rather dubious claim that Ukraine is planning to invade a breakaway region in Moldova as part of a false flag operation. So uh, Russia are claiming that Ukraine are planning to stage this attack by purportedly Russian forces as a pretext for their own invasion. Now, I think this is clearly absurd, to be frank, but obviously... Uh, it is causing concern that this may well be an intention of Russia to stage some kind of false flag attack in order to invade Moldova. Do I think that's likely? I personally would say it probably is, given the uh, risks attached to doing so diplomatically for, for Russia. So uh, that is causing some, some concern this morning. But the bigger, I think, frustrations I sense in the Western world are the remarks about China this morning. So Putin has been talking about how Moscow and Beijing can stabilise, and that's a direct quote, the world, um, as, of course, he's hosting Chinese, the top Chinese officials there during joint military drills that are taking place in South Africa at the moment. But he gave these big televised remarks yesterday, hailing the country's partnership with China as something that can benefit the whole world and that it is reaching new frontiers. And I'll quote directly, the cooperation between China and Russia on the world stage is very important to stabilize the international situation. Russian-Chinese relations are developing as we planned in previous years. Everything is moving forward 
and developing. Now, China have been less effusive in their enthusiasm, it has to be said. They have said that they seek the two countries to maintain normal exchanges in trade and cooperation. But as I said earlier in the week, the real significance here is that China are there for the anniversary. And I think that tells you all that you need to know really about where their loyalties seem to lie at this moment. And indeed, there are continual anxieties, it seems, that China are weighing up whether they're going to send weapons to Russia to be used in Ukraine. That is a serious concern. According to the Wall Street Journal, there are plans for the US to actually release the intelligence they have regarding that, which of course would be significant because I'm sure a lot of us, not least journalists like us, would very much like to read those. It's unclear what those weapons might be, but one scenario is Beijing may be seeking to replace the huge amount of heavy weapons such as tanks that Russia have lost so far. So a lot of anxiety around this issue and one of course that I will be covering closely and returning to next week and tomorrow if there are any other updates. Just a couple of other smaller ones in the diplomatic space. Uh, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has arrived in Ukraine to meet Zelensky on the eve of the one-year anniversary. Uh, he was received by Ukraine's Deputy Foreign Minister and the Ukrainian Ambassador in Madrid. So I mention this just, of course, to underline that whilst we're always talking about the big stuff, the US, the US, and of course when there are prominent military donations that have made, I saw Finland have now agreed to send uh, three leopards today as well. It is important to say that there are world leaders who are still going every day to Ukraine and want to meet Zelensky and want to offer their support. Giorgio Maloney, I think, was there yesterday or the day before. So it's so much is happening, it's hard for us to, to cover it all in the diplomatic space. But I just want to end in this on the remarks by Ben Wallace, which I thought were interesting. He said in a radio interview this morning, this of course is Britain's defence minister, uh, whether he suspects that the war will go on for another year and he responded I think that it will I think Russia has shown a complete disregard not only for the lives of the people in Ukraine but for its own soldiers we are sitting here 12 months in and 188,000 actually more now Russian soldiers are dead or injured as a result of this catastrophic miscalculation and aggression by President Putin when someone has crossed the line to think it is okay to do that to your own people and is running effectively a meat grinder for an army, I think he is not going to stop. And I think, of course, that is the messaging that Putin himself is putting forward. I agree with Ben Wallace's analysis, but that is also the analysis that Putin is trying to, to say to the world, that he is committed, that he is grinding in and that he is getting China support. All of this week, this is an attempt by Putin to deter the West and to make the West blink first in, in, at the prospect of a long and even bloodier war. And the question for the West, of course, is will it? Thank you very much, Francis, Janine and Natalia. Uh, Dominicals, would you like the very final words? Well, I, I can't really say anything that will add um, to Janine and Natalia's comments today. And all that I w wish to try and anything I I say will be particularly glib, so I won't try and, and add anything there or any, any updates. Just to say that uh, I think tomorrow, David, you are away. I'll be in the hot seat in the little shoes, so please do join us Join us then. We're going to be treating it as a normal day. I mean, we've done a, a few bits and pieces for the anniversary, but um, as everyone in the country knows, everyone in Ukraine and elsewhere knows, it's, it's a normal day for them over there, so we're not going to treat it as any differently here. So, um, yeah, please, please join us tomorrow for Ukraine the latest. Before we go, just some exciting news from us. Last week, we asked you to submit your questions to us for a special video episode of the podcast to mark the anniversary of one year since Russia's full-scale invasion. Well, that video is now live. You can find a link to it in the podcast description for this episode. 
Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Whilst we couldn't feature all of them, they shaped the questions we did put to our panel, which included two special guests, Aliona Halivko, a former Ukrainian MP, and Oksana Zabushka, renowned Ukrainian novelist and essayist. To give you a sense of the kind of things we talked about, here's Oksana and Aliona speaking about the moment that they both discovered the full-scale invasion had begun. Thursday, 24, very early in the morning, I was awakened with a phone call from home, and it was, honey, it's started, they are bombing us. And this honey, it's started, this has been the phrase which millions of Ukrainians were at this hour exchanging with their loved ones. Aliona, um, Oksana mentioned the, the honey it's begun moment that she says every single Ukrainian had. Um, I think lots of the Ukrainians we've spoken to over the past year talk of that moment. Did, did you have that as well? What, Absolutely. What was the start of the, the invasion like for you? I remember that the night before, obviously it's been quite intense two weeks leading up to the day of uh, full-scale invasion because London was obviously buzzing with discussions and, and meetings and roundtables. Is it going to happen or not? Um, so I've been quite engaged in those. And the night before, because th- there was such a long lead up, you, we expected the invasion on Tuesday that week and then Wednesday. And then so every day you would kind of brace yourself to face the terrible news. And um, I remember when the invasion didn't happen at the second alert on, on Wednesday, I uh, thought on Thursday, OK, maybe we can exhale now and who knows, maybe it's not going to happen. The intelligence was still very contradictory those days. Um, And on Thursday, I remember really struggling to go to sleep. I think I only managed to fall asleep at 4 a.m. And little did I know that London time, 4 a.m., that's exactly when when Russia started bombing Ukraine. And two hours later, um, I woke up from a phone call from my grandmother, uh, who was then in the country and obviously probably watching the news and being woken up by... Uh, missiles blowing up all around. Uh, We are based in the west of the country, so it wasn't directly in the city, but it was nearby. And her words were, child, wake up, the war has started. And I think those words made me so shocked that I started getting loads of uh, phone calls from journalists in London who kind of pre-booked me a a week before saying that is it okay for us to call you in the middle of the night anytime if the invasion happens to get the first comment and I remember missing all of the phone calls and not being able to speak or to pick up the phone because I was just crying and trying to comprehend whether my country is going to exist by that evening and what's going to happen to my family and my brother. That was a quite a horrible day and I remember the first day was so long uh, when you kind of see the updates every minute and you call everyone you know and everyone you love and just check if everyone's alive. And I think that has been, that's continued for about a week of very little sleep and constantly in the news and on the phone and at the events. Um, definitely a, a very different reality now, thank goodness, because we've lost it. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Emily Hill.